Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Well, good morning on a Wednesday, the 23rd of August. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura in New York. Tom Keene's well-deserved summer vacation continues. Carol Masser joins me today in our Bloomberg 1130 studios, a voice you're no doubt accustomed to hearing in the late afternoon. We've made her wake up early today to join us on Bloomberg Surveillance. I never to, went to sleep, Never David. went to sleep. That's the trick. <laughs> Tom Keene taught me that early on. Uh, so much to talk about today. President Trump speaking for more than an hour last night at a rally in Phoenix, Arizona, and we saw the market move quite a bit as he uh, threatened to rip up NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. He talked about uh, the debt limit. He said if lawmakers were to refuse to fund a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, something he talked about from time to time on the campaign trail, you might remember, uh, he would he would not raise the debt limit, something Congress is going to be charged with doing uh, as soon as they get back to Washington uh, in early September. Uh, so he he uh, he went off script, shall we say. And as I said, the market moved. Let's take a quick check of the data this morning. Looking at dollar uh, Mexico this morning, at 1778. We saw the peso weaken on those remarks from President Trump last night. DXY right now at 93,411. Futures right now down five. Uh, Dow futures down 33. Uh, looking at sterling right now at 128,10. Uh, we're expecting a new position paper, Brexit-related position paper this morning on the European Court of Justice, something that's been highly anticipated. Emma Ross Thomas, our bureau chief in London, is going to join us in just a little bit uh, to talk about that. Gary I'm waiting for it to come all. out on Netflix. There you go. <laughs> I, you know, she was on television with us, and I asked her, Carol, just sort yes. of about the uh, the import of these documents. Because from what I gather, what I've read here, um, Prime Minister Theresa May has backtracked a bit on uh, what she drew as a red line during the you know during the early stages of Brexit here uh, about the degree to which the European Court of Justice would have jurisdiction over the UK. Uh, and it seems to me like this is a starting point for negotiations so that they continue both uh, internationally and domestically. Well, Brexit has been fascinating to watch, right? The wishes and the expectations of uh, what you want in this changing environment over in the UK, and then the reality of how it all plays out, right? There's lots of voices, uh, lots of moving parts. And so uh, we're still waiting kind of for what the reality of what Brexit will be uh, for the UK moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And a couple of guests this morning telling us that they think that um, the Brexit process is maybe two to three months behind a schedule. Of course, that deadline looms here just a few months uh, away from uh, from now, uh, and uh, yeah, that 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 dovetailing with domestic politics. There's a ton to talk about. Gary Schilling uh, joins us now. He, of course, is the president of a uh, Gary Schilling. Always get, great to get his insights from time to time. As we look ahead here to Jackson Hole, that big Fed conference scheduled to kick off this afternoon. Our colleague Michael McKee uh, out there with Gina Smilek, who covers uh, economics for us at, at Bloomberg News. They'll be doing a series of great interviews uh, as that conf- conference gets underway. Gary Schilling, great to speak with you. Thanks for doing TV uh, and radio this morning. What are you going to be listening for uh, as policymakers gather uh, in Wyoming at the foot of the Grand Tetons uh, for their conference again kicking off this afternoon? Well, we're obviously listening to see if they say anything different. Uh, I mean, Draghi may may say something about about, uh, backing down on on QE. Uh, We may get a more definitive timetable from Yellen on when they are going to start reducing their portfolio. Obviously, some discussion of where they think the economy is and how they're going to react in mm. terms of policy. But I'm not sure we'll see any huge differences, just more more firming up the sort of message they've been delivering. And central banks have basically, they do want to 
raise interest rates. They do want to reduce their portfolios, or in the case of of the ECB, uh, cut back on QE. But they want to do it very gradually. They they don't want to have another taper tantrum like they had in 2014. So um, they've they've given a lot of a lot of signals, if you will. And I think it's just sort of an idea of fleshing out a little more, mm. making it a little more definitive what they may what they may be uh, planning. But uh, I wouldn't think we'd get any dramatic changes. Gary, if we look at the, the Fed's mandate, right? <clears throat> They're watching the labor market. They watch inflation. If you do that, labor market, check, looks pretty good. Uh, inflation, we don't seem to have any worries about that as well. Uh, they'd like to actually see a little bit more inflation why is the Fed being so hesitant? Is it just a case of managing investors, managing the markets? Yeah, probably that. They, they've really got themselves hooked into this forward guidance deal. You know, if you look back at the uh, financial crisis, um, a lot of that occurred because there were things that were not known. And transparency became the order of the day as a result. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, central bankers are mere mortals, and they were infected by the transparency bug, and that, in their case, became forward guidance. So I think they felt that, that this was a way to, uh, to really inform everybody. Now, I mentioned we, we did a study that showed that, that back in, in 1994, uh, when they had no forward guidance and the Fed raised interest, interest rates from 3% to 6% in a matter of about seven months, Markets were actually less volatile then than they have been since 2015, December, when they uh, have had forward guidance and raised interest rates only only 100 basis points. So I don't think it's worked, but I think they, they somehow feel that they're doing their job if they tell everybody well in advance what they're going to do. Well, I do wonder, you know, David, I, I think about times I used to come in and, <clears throat> and the Fed would totally surprise you mm-hmm. early in the morning by doing policy. Have they lost their efficacy by not by, by being so oh, yeah. transparent? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. You know, I, I think you go back to William McChesney Martin. Uh, he was one of these guys who said, you know, the Fed's job is to take away the punch bowl just when the party gets rolling. <laughs> right. And back in those days, uh, they, they did uh, enjoy that sort of shock value and the unknown as to what they were going to do. And, you know, you can get too familiar. I mean, it, it's, it's okay yeah. for lovers to be familiar, but sometimes <laughs> for the rest of us, you don't want to be too close to the, Wait, wait, wait. That's Bloomberg else. After Dark. Surveillance After Dark. Too early. Wait, where's Gary, he going? Gary with us here. I'm Bloomberg well, Surveillance. A little, little lightness here in the morning. <laughs> Love here, guys. it. Love it. Brought to you by National Realty. Managers of New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, and Florida cash flow real estate offering safe, high-yield cash flow property units. See them at nria.net. Gary, let me just ask you about the goings-on uh, in Washington. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the prospects for tax reform. You and I spoke a few months back. Uh, I think I can characterize your, your sense of where things were headed as pessimistic when it comes to, to Washington uh, policy. How have you reevaluated things here as the year has, has wore on? Do you think that we're going to see tax reform in, in 2017 or 2018? Probably not in a substantial way. We're certainly due for it. You know, you go through cycles. Um, you get very, very uh, – you get tax reform like we had in 1986, and I remember at the time thinking, boy, this is wonderful. And I talked to a guy named Barbara Conable, who was the ranking Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee, later head of the World Bank. Unfortunately, he's dead now. But but he uh, he said, don't get excited about this, because uh, I said, we're finally getting your sense you, you have tax reform. And he says, because almost everything we do in Congress for our constituents involves the tax code. Mm. And he took me into his inner office, mm-hmm. had, his, had his staff drag in two big mail sacks, and we sat there for, for an hour opening the letters. And they all said the same thing, first paragraph. Dear 
Uh, Representative Conable, you're doing a great job in reforming taxes, simplifying and getting government under control. Paragraph two, I know you're going to back and vote for that Rivers and Harbors project in our town. <laughs> and, and, and so you go through these cycles. Now, we're about due for massive tax reform because things have gotten so complicated. It is cyclical. Uh, but unfortunately, with the uh, divisions well, in Congress, even even, you know, even with the Republicans and, and the and the White House, you kind of say, is there is there enough momentum that it's going to happen? What's the tax reform we need, though, Gary? Is it a case <clears throat> of a less complicated tax system or is it lower taxes? Which is it? Oh, I think it's a less complicated tax system more than more than anything else. I mean, uh, I'm not sure that lower taxes have a great great impact. You know, there is this this argument that people work harder if they get more of what's left. But um, I'm not sure that the evidence of that is, is all that clear. And not that I want to pay more taxes. Believe me, I want lower taxes personally. But but as a as a uh, uh, looking at it uh, as a professional forecaster, um, I'm not sure it's that. But tax simplification, <clears throat> because because it, it it distorts it distorts business and personal decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, if, if you have a tax code that favors um, it, that favors uh, capital spending on one particular area, you're going to get a lot of that. Now, whether that is what's in the best interest of productivity in the economy is another question. So it, it's it's simplification more than anything else, and and that brings trust. Right. You know, people have more trust in, in government if they feel that, that they're all being f- treated goes fairly. goes back to transparency. Yeah, transparency. Gary, great to speak with you. Thanks again for, for taking all the time this morning, appearing on Bloomberg uh, Surveillance on television, Bloomberg Radio as well. Uh, I Gary's made a showing. salad dressing recently with your honey, by the way. Oh, we were just talking. You've just done oh, yeah. a harvest, Gary? Yeah, that's right. That's right. We take off the honey uh, in August because we got to get medications <laughs> on. And obviously, you don't want to put those on the hives. Well, the honey's on there that we're going to eat, so we take off the honey, and we had a. It was a, a good, but not a spectacular year. It was a. It was a cold, wet spring, and the bees don't like to fly. Does it say when anything about the markets that Pardon bee me? harvest? Well, you know, we we had a pretty good correlation between the market action and and uh, our, our honey harvest, but it broke down the last two years. Okay. For the uninitiated, it's, it's kind of like you know, it's kind of like the solar eclipse. Um, uh, if you go outside and beat a drum, it'll go away. 100% correlation, but zero causality. <laughs> Gary, thank you very much. Gary Schilling, the president of A. Gary Schilling, a beekeeper uh, as well, a purveyor of yes. fine honey. We get uh, some every year here at Bloomberg. David Gray and Carol Masser in for Tom Keen. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> You are listening to Bloomberg Surveillance. Carol Masser along with David Gore. I'm in for uh, Tom Keene. Now, last night, of course, uh, we heard from President Trump at the Phoenix Convention Center delivering really kind of an angry and forceful defense of his response to what went on in Virginia, also talking about uh, NAFTA uh, and building the wall. We want to bring in uh, Chuck Gabriel, his president and founder of Capital Alpha Partners. Uh, He's joining us uh, on our phone lines. Uh, Chuck, a friend of uh, Bloomberg Surveillance. Nice to have you back with us. Uh, Your initial take on what we got from the president. This was not... Donald Trump on prompter, was it? <laughs> uh, totally unreconstructed un- un- Trump, for, for sure. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he doubled down, you know, he defended his, uh, his ambiguous statements about, about the Charlottesville violence, attacked the media, attacked the two Arizona senators and uh, the Senate Majority Leader, and he pledged to shut down the government if necessary to secure a border wall funding. So, you know, y- yesterday we were 
seeing the markets react to a positive, uh, uh, you know, very professionally delivered speech on Monday that showed that he could, you know, rely on a very competent national security team uh, and, and uh, change the subject, if you will. And then yesterday there was a positive account from uh, one news source that suggested they were making progress and beginning to sift through, uh, you know, some of the, the revenue offsets to lower tax rates. But that was very much mm-hmm. overstated. So, you know, we called them happy campers yesterday for all kinds of reasons we could get into, but uh, not so much today. This, this at best might provoke a sigh in the markets, we guess. Well, Chuck, this is what you've got to do, just like investors have to do, right? We have to sift through what we get from President Trump and his team. And sometimes when it's constrained President Trump and sometimes when it's not, you've got to give advice to the financial institutions that you talk to. What do you tell them at this juncture? Because we do get such different tones, if you will, out of this administration. Yeah, we, we tell them not to take it too seriously, but also to be girded for a particularly very choppy September, uh, Carol, because obviously we have the, uh, the decisions that have to be made to fund the government, extend the debt limit. And, and the president doesn't seem likely uh, to be lining up to be very helpful on that uh, score. You know, in other words, he might be a leg weight uh, that Mitch McConnell and, and Speaker Ryan and others have to wear as they, as they move through that process. He's, he's instinctively going back to his base. But what we tell investors is the real hope for tax reform lies with Congress, not the White House. And so the president doesn't really have to play a heroic role, just a less destructive one. Well, as we talk about roles, let me bring up this article that was in the New York Times this morning by uh, Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns, focusing on that relationship between the president and the Senate Majority Leader, painting a pretty bleak picture uh, of the state of that relationship. The two uh, gentlemen haven't spoken in a matter of weeks. Uh, There's a lot of animosity uh, between them. How problematic is that, again, as you look at this agenda that lawmakers face when they get back to Washington at the beginning of September? I, I think it can be overstated. He, it's interesting that the president, uh, you know, attacked Jeff Flake and, and Senator McCain, the two Arizona senators. But, you know, he just basically said, talk to Mitch, talk to Mitch. So he has to work with McConnell. Uh, somebody within his inner circle has to be uh, telling him that there are all kinds of problems that, uh, that McConnell is dealing with with a very narrow 52-48 Senate majority. And then that one defection in the end from Senator McCain. So, you know, and McConnell gave the president his one big achievement, legislative achievement so far, in changing the filibuster rules to actually help confirm, uh, you know, our new Supreme Court justice, Mr. Gorsuch. So, I, you know, again, it's it, it's interesting to watch. It, it makes yeah. for, you know, great, great, uh, great, great uh, alarmist news articles. But on the other hand, they're going to have to work together. And I, 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 unfortunately, this what this could point to is the president's belief that his role you know, over the next few weeks and months could be just to criticize and cajole the Congress using the stick, if you will, to try to get his way. And that, that will not be helpful. Carol, with uh, a thousand questions mm. going forward. <laughs> like, well, yeah. You know, one thing I wonder uh, about, Chuck, is the role of Mike Pence in all of this. I feel like we all are driven... Uh, you know, and attracted to the shiny things in the room when it comes to this new administration. Mike Pence is pretty quiet, the vice president, but he's been pretty key uh, in, I think, shaping policy behind closed doors and also in the communication interactions, the relationships with Congress. How important is kind of Mike Pence in moving any kind of legislation forward here, whether it's tax reform or other? I, I do think he plays a very important role, Carol. It's a great point. And it's interesting, you know, one of the things we gauge, we talk to institutional investors a lot, and, 
you know, we've had one or two that have sort of tried to game uh, what a tense administration might look like uh, if anything were to happen to the president. And uh, obviously we're a long way from anything like that ever happening. But it's interesting they've they sought to sort of game this general notion that's out there in the markets that, a, you know, that a Pence administration might not be so bad because he does have those positive relations with the Congress uh, and, uh, you know, thinks like a House, uh, House Freedom Caucus guy. He was head of the Republican Study Committee, which is the forerunner to the House Freedom Caucus. So I, I think they're important. And obviously, you know, you have an OMB director that was a, a former House Republican and, and uh, you know, very senior House Republican in Mick Mulvaney. So they shouldn't have any dearth of ways to communicate uh, with the Congress. It's just that, you know, the president's style is pugilistic, confrontational, if you will, and he continues to go back to his base. But Pence is a really, really key player for sure. That's a good point, though, also about the president going constantly kind of back to his base. He loves rallies. He loves being on the campaign trail. I get that. I think we all get that. Is he, though, an effective leader in some regard by doing so? Well, he could become one again if he if he could just find a way to you know, sprinkle in some beginnings of salesmanship on you know the need to to you know to to change the tax code in order to make America great again, and and to try to sort of begin some appreciation among his base and the Republican base for why we need to you know to make corporate tax changes and and to you know to absorb some tough ones to get there, so. You know, he, he's not helpful when he's, when he's changing the subject to, to issues that, you know, as much as, as often as not seen about him and, and his, his, his problems with the New York Times and, you know, and, and um, the Post and others, the media in particular, and then sort of personal peak towards some of the individual members, uh, he can become a very positive force again. But again, our, our view is we're going to get tax reform, and that's mostly because Congress will drive it. So we think articles like that, the one the other day that suggested that the White House is beginning to narrow down trade-offs and to make progress working with the Congress, uh, very much overstates you know, the difficulty we'll have to go through September, October, and then how ultimately Congress will have to make the tough decisions itself. Chuck, you look at the, the market movement last night, uh, whether it's in the currency market or in the futures markets, as the president spoke, it makes me wonder what you tell an institutional investor who doesn't know who he should be listening uh, to on the issue of trade, uh, for instance, it seems like we we now know we're supposed to be listening to to Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross and to Robert Lighthizer on the issue of the debt ceiling. It seems like we had been uh, trained to listen to the Treasury Secretary uh, and to Gary Cohn, the head of the NEC, uh, as well. But you have the president interjecting on these issues, uh, and clearly investors feel like they have to give that some credence. How much credence do you give what the president has to say on these important issues? David, <laughs> yeah, how do you? How do you write a playbook for administration officials who you have to essentially play along with the message, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I, I think Wall Street understands that, as Mitch McConnell said, there will be a debt ceiling extension. So they, they can see beyond that. Uh, but they, on the other hand, when the president says he's willing to shut down the government if necessary to force funding of a border wall, you know, that, that's just beginning to reinforce what, what, I, what I can think smart people have been anticipating all along, is that September's going to be a very a choppy month. So there is sort of Trump, the populist, uh, who, who could be even more effective if he became Trump the evangelist for, you know, positive parts of his agenda versus the, you know, the blocking and tackling that his cabinet and uh, agency officials have to endure 
uh, to actually run the government. You've got uh, the members of the big six, as they're called, uh, two members from the House, the Senate uh, and the administration, kind of crossing the country now talking about uh, tax reform. Uh, The House Speaker, Paul Ryan, is up, uh, I think, on the Intel campus in Oregon today talking about uh, tax reform there. What are you going to be looking for when we finally get a proposal, a plan from from the White House? We've been operating from this Ryan-Brady blueprint for some time now. Where are your eyes going to wander? What are you going to be looking for when we finally get that document, a document, I presume, which will be longer than the, the one page we've gotten so far? Well, it might be longer, but I, I, I think it's wrong to anticipate a document from the White House. I mean, that didn't work well uh, with the, Afford- the American Health Care Act, you know, when the Republicans tried to move sort of a pre-agreed-to Obamacare repeal bill. Uh, and that, that very skimpy statement of principles from, uh, you know, the key players on tax reform, and the two of them, the White House officials, last month, you know, kind of signaled that they're starting off from a very, very base level. So... I really don't think we should look for a White House proposal, and ultimately where we're heading, it really does discard the, the what I would call the 2.0 Brady-Ryan plan that actually avoided the tough decisions we're now going to have to, to, to face with regard to the mortgage interest deduction, state and local tax deductions, et cetera. We could have avoided all that if we just merely accepted a border tax or you know the repeal of the net interest, corporate net interest deductibility because those have now largely been rejected, formally rejected, we have to go through this exercise of going back to look at the, the tax trade-offs that were in the Camp Bill, David Camp, former Ways and Means Chairman, back in 2014. And that really is the working template, certainly in the Senate Finance Committee, and even apparently based on the article we were reacting to uh, yesterday positively, uh, you know, that's apparently already uh, the, the major template for discussion among all the big six negotiators. Hey, if we relate some of this back, Chuck, to the financial markets, if I look at the financials specifically, um, among the laggards, if you look at the major industry groups in the S&P, still up about 6.3 percent, um, but other names and other groups have done a heck of a lot better. We have seen kind of a little bit of a rally, though, from about early June in financials. Um, I guess I'm thinking about investors trying to figure out what what's the environment. We have seen some regulations starting to roll back, but there's a lot more that could be done. Um, and obviously, interest rates play into all of this. What's what's the outlook for those names specifically in terms of policy regulations out of Washington? Yeah, the the, the, the rally in financials is long overdue, and and you know they escaped the uh, a worser fate, so to speak, had had Trump not won. So, you know, there was sort of a four part argument for rotation in the financials at the elections, and it was you know about how we were going to start seeing the Fed raise rates. Uh, and so we're going to have higher net interest margins. We are going to have uh, deregulation for sure, and that's the one thing that really has been tangible. The net interest margins really haven't been there so far. And then we're going to see lower corporate tax rates, and you know, uh, particularly the smaller you get, the higher a tax you pay, uh, effective tax you pay as a bank. But if you were to actually just even just lower the rates to 25%, that would get a lot of the banks uh, to have uh, really a bit of a dividend. And then you were hoping for longer-term growth. Mm-hmm. You know, those are sort of the four elements of rotation in the financials. And so far, the only one that's been real has been deregulation. So, but I, but I do think this could be a multi-year positive story, kind of like we had in the mid-'90s yeah. for financials. And, so, you know, some of my friends like Mike Mayo, who I used to work with at, at Prudential, has even become a bull again. I think that only happens every couple of decades. Sure. Chuck, thank you very much. Appreciate the perspective this morning. Chuck Gabriel of Capital Alpha Partners on our phone lines. 
David Guerrero with Carol Masser today on Bloomberg Surveillance. Tom Keen is on vacation this week, and uh, we're looking at some new data from the EIA a little later this morning, some energy mm-hmm. data. Uh, Jacques Rousseau joins us now on our phone lines. He's a managing director in charge of global oil and natural gas for Clearview Energy Partners. Uh, let's start broad, if we could, here, Jacques. What's driving oil prices at this point? Well, I think you need to take a step back and say, you know, what was OPEC's goal when they decided to um, start a production cut? And the first one was to balance the oil market uh, with supply and demand, and that happened in the second quarter of this year. The next one was to reduce inventories, and that one's a little bit trickier because the inventories that we can easily count um, are in the OECD countries, and they've stayed relatively flat but a lot of other inventories around the world have started to decline. So that part of OPEC strategy has begun to work. But the point that I think is most important is that there is a strong seasonality of demand in the world, global oil demand. And the world uses 1.5 million barrels per day more oil in the second half of the year than the first half of the year. Mm. And this is just seasonal, more driving um, around the world. So this is OPEC's big chance that if they can uh, keep their production down and demand rises in the second half of the year, then you could see a bigger move down in inventories, and, and that should drive prices a little bit higher. Jacques, it, was, it wasn't more than just a few months ago we were having a conversation about the relevance of, of OPEC. Has that, has that been restored by the fact that they uh, fairly successfully had this production freeze? To some extent, yes. I, I think you, you can see they've definitely impacted the market. But when you take a look at what's going on in the U.S. with rising production, that is significant. And I think that's the biggest challenge OPEC faces is not the second half of this year because the higher demand, but what happens in the first half of 2018 when demand seasonally declines and there's higher production from non-OPEC countries. That's going to become a bigger challenge for OPEC. We have a story on the Bloomberg uh, talking about how U.S. benchmark crude is the cheapest relative to its global rivals in almost two years. And that could be signaling another wave of American oil headed abroad in coming weeks. When we look at kind of global flows of um, oil specifically, um, what does it tell you? What does it mean for investors potentially? Well, I definitely think you're seeing a lot of rising oil production in uh, in the U.S., and, and that's fairly well known by the market. I think one of the other pieces of the puzzle to think about is that in the fall is a big refinery maintenance period for the United States. So that means the United States is going to use less oil. So this oil will need to to go somewhere. Some of it will go into storage. But just as you were saying, a lot of it will end up getting exported. When you look at at oil globally, uh, at all the various hotspots, I think about Venezuela, I think about Libya. What What are we seeing in those countries? What effect are they having on the global price of oil at this point? Well, um, Libya and Nigeria are very much wild cards. Uh, From one month to the next, their production is moving up and down. They are not part of the OPEC quotas, although OPEC would like to bring them in at some point uh, because they are OPEC countries. So those are very hard to predict because it's basically about, uh, you know, pipeline bombings and and, uh, military actions that are going on. Venezuela is a little bit of a different story because there is uh, a situation where um, they have a lot of production of heavy oil that's easy to produce um, but difficult to, to move and sell because a lot of the different refiners around the world cannot even process it. Um, and with Venezuela, even though there is significant turmoil in the country, if you take a look back historically, 
they've generally kept a fairly constant level of, of production, um, albeit the one time in uh, the worker strike in, I think it was 2002, the production actually went almost to zero. So I wouldn't expect to see a drastic drop-off in Venezuela production, but it has been a gradual decline, and that is impacting the market. We're talking with Jacques Rousseau, Managing Director of Global Oil and Gas at Clearview Energy uh, Partners. Jacques, uh, obviously you focus on oil and gas. Got it. Your uh, traditional energy forms, if you will. How much do you keep an eye on what's going on in the alternative energy space? Um, we have a different analysts at our, our company that do take a look at uh, all different forms of energy, uh, so it is something that, that we, uh, we focus on. And I think another piece to, to focus on in that regard is efficiency. And, you know, one of the things we're seeing um, this year on the gasoline consumption side is we're seeing a little bit of a disconnect in the data because um, the government is reporting miles traveled on highways has gone up, yet gasoline demand is staying relatively flat. And, you know, you need to see a lot of data points to really get a look at it. But what could that mean? That could mean that we're starting to see all the efficiency gains in terms of CAFE standards and improved automobiles starting to take hold. So I think this is a real important variable to watch because it could end up cutting consumption, not just in the U.S., but globally. Bearing in mind here, you don't, you don't cover companies in specific. Let me just use some, some company news as a peg to talk about uh, the oil industry here in the U.S. Generally, we heard yesterday that John Watson, the CEO of Chevron, is, is stepping down. This, of course, is a huge integrated uh, oil company. What does that move say to you about the direction of companies like like Chevron? Uh, we look back at his tenure. I guess he was in, in, in the job for eight years. Um, does it does it give you any indication of where things are headed with these big energy conglomerates in the U.S.? I actually worked for uh, Mobile Oil in the 1990s, and you know one of the things I learned from being in these large companies is that they're very well organized and very well structured in terms of the management succession planning. So this is something where, you know, Mr. Watson's been there since 1980, that this isn't something, you know, coming out of the blue. And, and I think one way you can see that is that um, uh, Mike Worth, who uh, was appointed vice chairman in February, so that was a signal that he was the, the next one in line for the, uh, the role. So I wouldn't take too much out of it in terms of, you know, any sort of big change in, in uh, how the companies are operating. This, this is kind of just the way these big oil companies work. Energy names uh, in the S&P 500 uh, as a whole overall down about 17.6% so far in 2017. When you look at the investment space, how do you play it as an investor? Well, we don't recommend individual stocks at Clearview, but I think one of the things to, to think about, too, is on the, the oil price front. What, what is this all telling you? Um, you know, I do think we'll see a little bit of a pop in oil price in the second half of this year, as I was mentioning, because of seasonally rising demand. But bigger picture, what investors are looking at is that there's a lot of supply out there, and there's a lot of supply in the U.S. And so if you take a look at uh, what the forward curves are telling you on the oil market is that you know, we're going to be in this range-bound period for, for a while. And I think that makes it difficult for, for many of the energy mm-hmm. stocks. Saw the news about BHP Billiton uh, yesterday. They're going to be offloading a lot of their uh, shale properties. And I, I wonder if we could talk broadly here about the state of, 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 of shale here in the U.S. Uh, obviously, we see the price of oil hovering around $48, $49 a, a, a barrel. How attractive are those parcels of land going to be? Uh, how attractive uh, is, is U.S. shale at this point? 
Well, I guess there's a few different things yeah. to think about here. Um, one of them would be the fact that uh, the market uh, usually doesn't like conglomerate companies as much. So to, to separate uh, a mining business from a, an oil and gas business is probably beneficial. Um, in terms of the shale in general, you know, I think one of the interesting data points out there now is that we have seen the flattening out of the rig count because when oil price started to move up, uh, the rigs started to go to work and significantly increased. However, over the course of the last month, as oil price has you know, stabilized in the $50 range, give or take a little bit, you have seen a flattening of rig counts. And the reason this is really significant is that if you take a look globally, the International Energy Agency is saying 2018 demand is going to go up about 1.4 million barrels per day, but so is supply outside of OPEC most of that from the United States. So if the United States does not end up putting enough rigs to work and generating enough supply, then that could cause a little bit of a shortfall in the world. Shaka, just about 30 minutes' time, we're going to get the weekly petroleum status report from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. What are you going to be looking for in that, uh, in that report that we, get a, that we get on a weekly basis? Sure. We, we've seen a great trend of uh, declining uh, oil inventories um, it's actually been very significant. It's been about 70 million barrels starting in the beginning of the second quarter and into the third quarter. Some of this is seasonal, but it is showing the impact of what OPEC is doing because not only have we seen oil go down in that time frame, and that represents about 13% of what inventories are, we've also seen a tick down in, in uh, gasoline inventories and, and distillate inventories, which is the diesel category. I mentioned Venezuela glancingly uh, in, in the last block. Let me bring it up again here. There's been a lot of speculation that when you look at the tools that the U.S. presidential administration, that the Treasury Department has at its disposal, one might be freezing oil exports from Venezuela. What kind of effect would that have on the global energy marketplace if that were, in fact, to have? I'm not saying that it will, but uh, again, it's something that's been floated here in conversations about uh, how the U.S. might take action against Venezuela. Yeah, I guess there's a few different pieces of what could happen. Um, Venezuela, as I mentioned before, produces a lot of heavier oil. And what they do is they take lighter oil that they import from places like the United States and they blend that together to, to make it easier to ship and easier to sell oil. So if the United States stops sending them light oil, that could cause Venezuela some problems. Of course, they could end up you know, procuring that oil from somebody else, but it, it would take some logistics involved. Secondarily, the United States could stop accepting Venezuela oil into our country, and that would have some problem for the complex refiners in the Gulf Coast because this lower quality oil can only be used by certain refiners that have invested significantly in equipment like cokers to process this mm. oil. So if they were not allowed to purchase this oil, they would have to find this lower quality oil somewhere else maybe more from Canada. Um, there's a few other countries that could make it come through. Uh, but to, to kind of answer your question, um, oil's oil, and it'll end up somewhere around the world. It could cause a temporary um, spike in prices, but everything will readjust um, in terms of the supply moving from you know one country to another. Oil is oil. We'll leave it there. Jacques Rousseau, thank you very much for the time today. Jacques Rousseau, the Managing Director of Global Oil and Natural Gas at Clearview Energy Partners. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, 
or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.